What's in a mystery that makes it so compelling? Is it just an inability to leave well enough alone? We always have to know, don't we? Many people fill their days trying to avoid the unknown, but it's always going to be there, nagging your thoughts with worry and obsession. The unknown drags us deeper into itself like a black hole until we fall into its center, and then the unknown, well, becomes known. Except what happens when it doesn't? What happens if the unknown remains a mystery? What if that black hole just swallows us and there really is nothing but darkness on the other side? Sometimes that is just too much for people to process. As we will see in this week's podcast, some mysteries invite speculation like like a porch lamp invites moths. Just like an insect, we can't begin to help what we're doing. We simply are drawn to answering those questions that haunt us. We just can't help but fill in the gaps of a story. The gaps in the story I'm about to tell you involve the still unanswered question of whether or not we are the cause of our action and what exactly we mean by free will. Join us for the next hour as we contemplate the confounding. We'll try to gain a little more understanding, but there are no easy answers here. This is Imperfect Clarity. It was a chilly Thursday morning in North Carolina, December 1903. The Wright brothers stand on top of one of the Kill Devil Hills, as they're named, near the now historic town of Kitty Hawk. One of the two brothers reaches into his pocket and pulls out a coin and flips it. This coin toss, whether they really knew it at the time or not, would decide something that would go down in history. Who was to be the very first human being to pilot a controlled flight of a heavier-than-air flying machine? The first airplane flight. Orville would win the coin toss. He prepared himself for the test of their right flyer. I wondered if, as he did so, Orville thought about that coin toss. I wonder if he thought about what it would mean for his place in history. Though the brothers did take turns flying their inventions over that hill on the outer banks of North Carolina, and although Wilbur would gain the most airtime and the longest flight, an impressive 59-second run that would take him over 850 feet through the air, Orville would still go down in history as the first to achieve this magnificent feat of controlled, powered flight. At 10.35 a.m. on December 17, 1903, Orville Wright broke loose from the bonds of gravity and sailed his flying machine for 12 seconds and 120 feet. And he was the first to do so because he won a coin toss. But it wasn't really because of the coin toss, was it? We would feel totally confident in saying that, had Wilbur taken the pilot's position before his brother, the brothers would still have been successful. No, it wasn't the coin, it was the ingenuity and persistence of Orville and Wilbur that led to the success of that first flight. Even if, had Wilbur taken the first flight and totally choked, piloted the craft into the hillside or something, The tenaciousness and genius of the brothers would have remained intact, and this was all that was needed for the invention of the airplane. We remember these two as heroes of invention. They are the fathers of aviation. These men achieved something great and praiseworthy by the strength of their wills, not because of some random 
outside influence, like a coin toss. Still, that coin toss wasn't the only thing that was left decidedly out of the control of these now-famous brothers. Nobody has much control, for example, over their circumstances of their childhood. How much influence might some moment of inspiration from their youth have had on the efforts at Kitty Hawk? I want to tell you about another flight the Wright brothers took. Less famous, but perhaps just as important to their story. Orville and Wilbur Wright had a large family. There were five siblings, plus the two of them, and their parents, Susan, their mother, and Milton, their father. Milton was a bishop in the Church of the United Brethren in Christ. Due to the demands of his position in the church, Milton moved the family around a lot. Wilbur was born in Indiana, near Millville, in 1867, and Orville in Dayton, Ohio, in 1871. Before they finally settled down in 1884, Milton had moved the family 12 times. But I'm not trying to cast the Wright brothers' father in a bad light, by any means. Milton Wright provided the boys and the rest of their family with quite an idyllic life. They were at least well off enough to provide the young Wright boys with some pretty cool toys. Milton encouraged his sons to be curious. The pair conducted experiments from their early childhood. Their father wasn't very mechanically inclined, but he still seemed to have a knack for inspiring his sons to learn, to find the answers for themselves. Of the parents, it was Susan, the boy's mother, who had an aptitude for building things. She grew up in a carriage shop and developed a love for engineering and math while she watched the carriages being assembled and repaired. Both parents played a huge part in the development of the first pilot-controlled fixed-wing aircraft just by giving their children that aspiration to learn and experiment and build things for themselves. One day in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, Milton came home with a gift for Orville, who was eight at the time, and Wilbur, who was twelve. It was one of those awesome toys that I talked about earlier. This one was simple, a stick of bamboo with a cork and a rubber band and a propeller. It was a toy helicopter, an invention of Alphonse Peinot. It was called a planophore. Alphonse was the first to use rubber bands to power model flying machines, and his model helicopter was the first stable model aircraft. The foot or so long toy with its propeller made of paper and its rubber band motor fascinated the young Wright brothers. When the thing finally broke, they just built themselves another one. The boys obviously loved this toy. It inspired them. The memory of it stuck with them. They talk about the toy years later. They said it was the beginning of their interest in flying. Had that toy not come into their little grade school hands, would Orville still have piloted that 12-second flight at Kitty Hawk? What about all the little decisions on the parents' part that encouraged their boys to learn? What if there's an even earlier inspiration, just as crucial as this helicopter toy, but unrecalled by the Wright brothers and lost to history? Sure, we think that moments like these are important, but taken individually, they don't decide someone's fate. Take them all together, though, and it's nearly tantamount to describing a person's life. If we considered every influence on the actions and attitudes of Orville Wright that had any kind of impact, every little moment that he had no control over, we took all those moments all together 
all the way up to that coin toss in 1903 and just took all of those little moments out of the equation, what would we have left? Whatever was left would certainly not be the Orville Wright that we remember in our history books today. Even the deliberate actions he took that led him to tossing that coin in Kitty Hawk on December of 03 were framed and interwoven with these other things that he had no control over at all. Even his deliberate actions were reactions to the prior influences in a long chain of causation stretching back far before Orville Wright himself. All the way up to the moment the coin went spinning into the air. This is starting to sound kind of deep. Well, buckle up. Today we're examining one of the most woe-inducing topics on the frontiers of neuroscience, psychology, and philosophy. What do we mean by free will? And is it an illusion? A big part of the discussion hinges on the idea of causation. This is the idea that every action is the reaction of some prior cause. This is an important idea. It's pretty much the foundation for the physical sciences. How can we learn about the physical processes in the world around us, predict outcomes, or experiment at all without the idea of cause and effect? Every cause must have an effect, and every effect is derived from a prior cause, and in itself is a cause for the next subsequent effect. The notion that everything in the universe, every action, every influence, every atom bumping into another everywhere in the whole universe, is caused by a prior physical event, gives rise to the idea of determinism. According to determinism, everything that happens had to happen the way that it did, because it was determined by the events that caused it. In case some of y'all's brains are a bit tired from such a deep dive, I'm going to tell you another story. This one is about another young boy, about the age Wilbur would have been when he got that toy helicopter. The year is about 366 of the Common Era. Our young lad is running through the streets of a Numibian city in northern Africa. The boy lived and went to school here in the town of Madaurus, where he would gain a love of philosophy and literature that would eventually earn him a place in our history books. On this particular day, though, he was learning a different kind of lesson than the ones he got by reading Plato or Cicero. He would later write about this day in his autobiography. Like the Wright brothers and their toy, this day stuck with our young boy in this tale. It stuck with him because of the armful of fruit he was carrying as he ran. You see, he and his friends had just committed a crime. They had stolen that fruit. Stealing food maybe doesn't sound as exciting as you would have expected, but this theft made a lasting impact on the boy. Many years later, he would describe this act like this. Quote, it was foul, and I loved it. I loved my own error, not that for which I erred, but the error itself. End quote. The thing that really stood out to him was the fact that they were not even hungry. They were in no way in dire need for that fruit. They just wanted to break the law. This wasn't the only act of immorality that would stand out in the autobiography. There were sexual escapades aplenty, some violence, general disregard for social conventions. As a teen, our young man, whose name was Augustine, led a hedonistic lifestyle. He took on a lover, a young woman from Carthage, and had a son with her. This ruffled his mother's feathers a bit, to say the least. She wanted him to marry someone in his own social class. And his relationship with this girl, not to mention any of the other girls, was not, however, the worst thing that Augustine could have done in his mother's eyes. No, 
That would be something more like converting religions. Augustine became a Manichaean, despite his mother's devotion to Christianity. But that didn't last forever. Neither did the thieving or the sleeping around. No, our man Augustine would later become renowned as Augustine of Hippo, Saint Augustine. He converted back to Christianity at the age of 31 and went on to become one of the most influential figures of Western theology and philosophy. Augustine saw that day when he and his friends stole the fruit as an eye-opening experience. It led him to conclude that humans were born with a natural tendency, a tendency to sin. He saw the original sin of Adam and Eve as a primal cause which had the effect of making all humans sinful by nature. From this he expounded his philosophy of predestination. Basically, St. Augustine believed that he could do no good unless God in his grace predestined Augustine to do so. You can see why this theological idea has had such an impact on the philosophy of free will. Although the modern notions of free will have evolved a bit from the time of the early Christian church, St. Augustine's struggle to wrap his head around the issue shows that people have been debating the merits of determinism versus libertarianism for a very long time. Quick note. Here's a term I didn't define earlier, and I probably should have. Philosophical libertarianism has nothing to do with the political ideology that is growing in popularity today. It's basically the opposing view to determinism. Libertarianism holds the view that the actions that a person takes by free, uncoerced, conscience choice are not predestined at all by prior causal events. The idea is that our free choices can stand alone. Causes that are themselves at root uncaused. Okay, back to the show. Discussions on the problem presented by determinism date as far back as the philosophy of ancient Greece. Two camps have been identified, starting from this time and continuing all the way up to today's debates on the matter. These are the compatibilist, who argue that free will can exist even if determinism is true, and the incompatibilist, who hold the view that either free will or determinism must be true, but not both. The incompatibilist can be further divided into the hard determinists and the metaphysical libertarians. At a very basic level, incompatibilists say that you have to pick sides. Everything is determined, or freedom of will is totally unrestrained by determinism. René Descartes, the philosopher who coined the phrase cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am, weighed in on the debate with the formulation of the mind-body problem, one of his many major contributions to modern science and philosophy. Descartes proposed an approach to reality that has been dubbed Cartesian skepticism. He imagined the reality he experienced as being like a basket of apples. Some of these apples are rotten, that is to say they are untrue ideas about the world around him. These are illusions, misconceptions, and Descartes wanted to remove them to get at the real truth at the root of the world around him. But upon examining each apple, that is, upon looking at every aspect of his view of reality individually, he concluded that they were all rotten. He noticed how, when he was dreaming, he didn't know he was dreaming. He couldn't tell the difference between dream worlds and waking life. And he surmised that, even in what he thought was his waking world, he could be tricked by some sort of demon casting illusions on him. In other words, he was skeptical of every single thing his senses told him. This is where I think, therefore I am comes in. In a fit of what I can only imagine was a deep existential crisis, Descartes begins to fear that there was no way for him to know even that he himself existed. The basket was empty. 
it may all be an illusion. But then he realized that even if the basket was empty, there was still a basket. If everything he experienced was an illusion, he must still be real in order to experience the illusion. He called this bottom-level experiencer his res cogitas, his thinking thing. Knowing that this was real, at least, gave him a base level upon which he could build the rest of his worldview. The idea that the thinking thing was different, separate from his body and the rest of the physical world around him, this is a type of libertarianism. The res cogitas and the free will it exerts is not determined because it is something wholly different from the physical world. Ideas like that of Descartes' dualism, the mind and body being two different kinds of things, are not widely held by philosophers today. It flies in the face of a naturalistic view of physical sciences. For the most part, the only two positions held by the majority of philosophers, neuroscientists, and psychologists are hard determinism, which says that all is determined, and therefore no free will at all, or compatibilism. Sure, everything may be determined, but free will still exists. We'll get more into that later. Right now, I know this has been a pretty deep dive into some heady stuff, but stick with me because I would like to pull apart the contemporary stance on these two philosophical views a little bit more. Trust me, it'll be worth it. In the end, I'll pull all this back together up on the level of the real world and daily life. But in order to do that, let's examine the arguments of one of the most outspoken proponents of each widely accepted camp, hard determinism and compatibilism. A little more closely. The neuroscientist Sam Harris has been a prominent advocate of hard determinism in the contemporary debate over whether or not the free will we feel like we have is really what it seems or if it is a deeply ingrained illusion. He authored the book Free Will, which was published in 2012. The arguments in the book are just as succinct as the title, and for the sake of full disclosure of my biases, I find the 96-page examination of the topic to be very compelling. One particularly convincing exercise Harris puts forth in his book asks the reader to take a look at where their thoughts and intentions come from. Quote, what is the next thought you're going to think, he asks. He explains that, quote, I cannot decide what my next thought or intention will be until it arises in my mind. You can no more decide what you will think next, he asserts, than what I will say next. In Harris's view, the conscious state of our mind in each moment, including the will that governs our actions, is the direct result of unconscious states of our mind that are completely outside the control of our consciousness. Being outside of conscious control, these brain states are determined, at least in the sense which is commonly used to define freedom of choice, or the lack thereof. These subconscious brain states, our beliefs, our values, our temperaments, etc., are what they are because of past influences. These influences don't originate in our will, and all the sensual data that gets filtered through our subconscious to produce conscious awareness, that doesn't originate in our will. So if we reject Descartes' notion that consciousness is made of something fundamentally different than the physical states of the brain, and accept that conscious awareness is the result of unconscious states which by definition, are outside of our conscious control, then there is no undetermined step in this process upon which we can hang our idea of freedom of choice. Even if Descartes is right and mind and body are truly different things, the fact that deliberate intentions hinge on the subconscious means we cannot control them. And therefore, 
they do not constitute any real freedom of choice. As another great philosopher, Arthur Schopenhauer, put it, a man can do as he wills, but cannot will as he wills. Sam Harris's argument seems pretty definitive, but can it really be the nail in Free Will's coffin? After all, we sure do feel free. There's a lot to be said for a subjective experience, as it pertains to this topic at least. The feeling that we are in control of our own actions is such a fundamental part of our conscious experience that separating the two, it leads down yet another abysmally deep rabbit hole of philosophical debate. We feel like we are our conscious thoughts and intentions. I'd like to tell you another story now. One that will highlight this idea that our brains and therefore our thoughts, intentions, beliefs, etc., are not functioning exactly the way that we think they are. Things aren't quite what they seem when it comes to our own minds. The year is 1977, and psychologist Michael Gazanaga is sitting with his research assistant, Joseph Ledoux, and a 15-year-old patient they identified as P.S. Quick note. Patients in studies like these are often only identified in publications of the research by their initials or some other pseudonym in order to protect the patient's privacy. Okay, back to the show. The scientist instructed P.S. to stare straight ahead at a dot that was placed in the center of the subject's visual field. Then they flashed some pictures in front of P.S. They flashed a picture of a chicken's foot in front of the right side of P.S.'s visual field, and then a picture of a snow-covered landscape in front of the left side. Gazaniga and Ledoux were testing something very peculiar that had been fascinating psychologists for several years by this point, the relationship between the two hemispheres of the brain. You see, P.S. had been suffering from terrible epileptic seizures. Anyone who has some familiarity with grand mal seizures knows all too well how much of a toll they can take on a person and their loved ones. Although people rarely die as a result of the seizure, they are an intense and terrifying experience that severely impacts the quality of one's life. However, by this point, physicians had yet to discover an effective way to cure this ailment. Well, at least no effective way that doesn't include some fairly outstanding side effects. In 1939, a new surgical procedure was first performed on 10 different people who suffered from debilitating epileptic seizures. The operation was called a corpus callosotomy, and it was a success. It stopped the seizures. It did so by stopping the out-of-control electrical activity that characterizes an epileptic seizure from traveling throughout the brain. This was accomplished by cutting the bundle of neurons that connected one hemisphere of the patient's brain with the other. In other words, they disconnected the two halves of these people's brains. The surgery, like I said, was a resounding success. The seizures stopped and the patient showed no signs of brain damage or major changes in personality or memory. No side effects were noticed at all until years later. In 1961, Gazaniga had begun studying people who had undergone a corpus callosotomy, split-brain patients, as they were called. P.S. was one of these patients. The test Gazaniga and Ledoux had administered to P.S. was meant to investigate the way the two halves of our brain interact differently with the world around us, and how they communicate with each other. By showing a picture of a chicken foot to only the right side of P.S.'s field of vision, 
they would only expose the left half of P.S.'s brain to this image. In the same way, only the right half of the brain perceived the snowy landscape that was flashed at the left eye. These kinds of experiments had been performed before, and the results from the first stage of questions that Gazaniga and Ledoux asked P.S. did not surprise them. They lined up with things that they had learned from previous experiments. They showed P.S. another two images, a chicken and a snow shovel. They then asked their subject to tell them which image most closely related to the ones that they had shown before. P.S. replied that the chicken was the one that had matched the best. This was because the left hemisphere controls our use and perception of language. By asking P.S. to respond verbally, the scientists were able to elicit a response from only the left hemisphere, which had no information about what the right hemisphere had been shown. However, then they asked P.S. to point to which picture was closest to the first pictures. P.S. pointed to the chicken head with the right hand and the snow shovel with the left. This is a pretty astounding result, yeah, but this was still something the psychologists had seen before. They expected this. The right hemisphere of P.S.'s brain wasn't dead or non-functional. It still heard what was being asked of it. It simply couldn't find the words to reply verbally with the question posed to it. However, when P.S. was asked to simply point, the right hemisphere had the opportunity to respond, since all it had to do was move the left hand which was under its control. Gazaniga and Ledoux understood this concept well, since Gazaniga had been one of the pioneers in the study of this phenomenon, along with Roger Sperry, when he had been a grad student in the early 60s. The surprise that earns this experiment a spot in this podcast today came with the next question posed to P.S. They asked, why did you point to the snow shovel? Now remember, this was a spoken question that sought a spoken response. So the only hemisphere of P.S.'s brain that could reply would be the left hemisphere. However, the left had never even registered that the snowy scene from the first round of pictures had been shown to him. Because of this, the psychologist expected P.S. to simply reply with profound confusion. I don't know, my hand just moved on its own, or something along those lines. However, P.S. did have an answer for them. Quote, because you need a snow shovel to clean out a chicken coop, end quote. Have you made the connection with free will yet? You see, unbeknownst to P.S., the left half of this subject's brain had invented some total B.S. in order to fill in the gaps of the story it was presented. The left hemisphere had no way of knowing the true reason why the left hand had pointed to the snow shovel. The only line of communication between the two hemispheres had been cut. But to let the left hand's actions remain inexplicable was simply not possible for P.S.'s left hemisphere. This result has been replicated many times and has shown a fairly chilling fact. Our brains lie to us. When presented with information that doesn't neatly fit into the narrative the brain has constructed as a framework for its own existence, the left hemisphere will simply change the facts to make them fit. P.S. didn't choose to make up the bit about the chicken coop. In fact, can we even say that P.S. chose to point to the snow shovel or the chicken, since each side of the brain chose two different images? Even deeper, can we really say which side was P.S.? Or if there really was a P.S. in that split brain at all? As Gazaniga put it in his book, Tales from Both Sides of the Brain, quote, The notion that there is an I, or command center, in the brain is an illusion. End quote. He wasn't the first to come up with this idea either. Sigmund Freud based much of his psychological theories on this notion. The idea of the ego, the id, the superego. 
Gazanaga's experiments, however, offered objective proof that this was the case. There is no I. Only the story that our left hemisphere makes up about our lives post hoc. If you are reeling right now, don't worry, you're not alone. You're probably thinking right now, perhaps with no small amount of indignation, that it doesn't matter to you what physics says about determinism, and it doesn't matter what psychology says about the illusory nature of the self. You know that there is a you because you feel it. I can tell you that all of your thoughts and actions are determined and are controlled by processes you have no conscious awareness of until I am blue in the face. But it doesn't matter because nobody lives their lives like that. If this pretty accurately describes what you're feeling, then you have just joined the ranks of the compatibilist camp and are in the company of some of the world's most renowned philosophers. According to a 2013 paper by David Borget and David J. Chalmers, entitled, What Do Philosophers Believe?, 59% of the philosophers questioned adhere to compatibilist views on free will. One such philosopher describes his views on the matter as an argument for, quote, free will that we want. His name is Daniel Dennett, and he endorses the view that the conscious I is an illusion. In his words, quote, consciousness is a collection of mundane tricks in the brain, end quote. Even still, he argues that we do still have free will. It may not necessarily look exactly like some of the classical notions of free will, which you may hold, but this is where the, quote, free will you want comes in. He argues that this collection of tricks in the brain add up to an ability that is different than any other brain. He describes the process of biological evolution as an arms race in competence. We are more competent than any other organisms because of our mind tricks on ourselves. We can, quote, represent our reasons. You see, even if it is true that all of our actions are determined physically, we have an ability to explain our reasons for doing things. We react to the naturalistically determined influences, but we can identify reasons for these actions, and we can communicate those reasons to others and use them in the narrative of our own minds. This gives us the competency to respond, and responding makes us responsible. We can predict the future with these reason representations and therefore we can change our behavior on the basis of this prediction. The representation of reasons to ourselves and to others is what Daniel Dennett sees as our free will. This issue of responsibility is the crux of the free will debate. How much blame do we deserve for our worst actions, and how much praise for our best? take a moment to thank our generous sponsors and that would be all of you this show is completely supported by our fans on patreon we couldn't keep this show going without your support if you would like to help keep this show going go visit our patreon page you can contribute as little as one dollar a month your generous donations help me to be able to put in enough time to make these episodes if you would like to contribute to the show but don't have the extra scratch for Patreon, no worries. You can be a tremendous help to the show by writing a review and rating us wherever you're listening to this podcast. Giving us reviews and ratings helps other people find us. If you like the show, then share it, rate it, review it. Give other people the opportunity to like the show also. 
And another great way that you can help out the show is to just drop us a line on any of the social medias where you can find us. We'd love to hear from our listeners and would welcome any feedback you want to give us. You can find us on Facebook. Our page is called Imperfect Clarity. Or you can look up the website at imperfectclaritypodcast.com or we're on Twitter at mpodclarity. And last but not least, you can always just email us. It's imperfectclaritypodcast at gmail.com. I really can't wait to hear from y'all. And thank you again to all of our generous patrons on Patreon. Okay, plug's over. Back to the show. I'm going to tell you another story, but I need to warn you first. This one is, well, it's a bit of a bummer. It involves murder and some instances of abuse, so listener discretion is advised. Charles is walking across the campus at the University of Texas at Austin. He's a 25-year-old muscly guy with a blonde military haircut. Charles had, in fact, been a Marine, and an exemplary one at that. He had rescued one of his fellow Marines by single-handedly lifting a jeep which had trapped the guy when it rolled over. This heroic stunt earned Charles quite a reputation around the base he was stationed at. In addition to putting himself in the hospital for four days in the process of saving a fellow Marine, however, Charles was also known as someone who would threaten other soldiers over gambling debts and loans. He was eventually court-martialed for this. That had been about two years ago now. Two years since he had been kicked out of the Marines. Honorably discharged, yeah, but still, he wasn't a Marine anymore. But he didn't let that get him down. He enrolled for the second time in the University of Texas, majoring in architectural engineering. He kept steady work, too. He took a job as a bill collector and then a bank teller. He also worked as a traffic surveyor and even was a scout leader. But everything wasn't going perfectly in Charles's life lately. He'd grown up in an abusive family with an authoritarian father and now it began to look like his family would be the same. He was broken with grief over the incidents, but on multiple occasions, he struck his wife. This happened often enough that, finally, she left him. That was three months ago, and he was in bad shape. He couldn't forgive himself for the way he had treated her. He told his psychologist that, his psychologist, by the way, whom he saw only once, that he suffered from uncontrollable bouts of anger and extreme aggression. This probably had something to do with the amphetamine addiction he developed on top of everything else. But as Charles strode toward the 28-story tower in the midst of the University of Texas campus, he carried what he had told the campus security was research equipment. It was, actually, weapons. And among those weapons was the hunting knife that he had just used earlier that morning to murder his wife and his mother. In his suicide note, he wrote this about killing his mother. Quote, I am truly sorry. Let there be no doubt that I loved this woman with all my heart. He had also killed two of his wife and his personal friends who had interrupted him in the middle of murdering the woman that he had married. Now, at around 11.30, he made his way up the tower, killing three people as he went. When he reached the observation deck on the 28th floor, he pulled out a hunting rifle and used the expert marksmanship he'd learned in the military killing an additional 14 people who were walking around campus and wounding 31. He stayed up in that tower for an hour and a half, sniping people before he finally killed himself. In the note he left, 
He asked that the money left over from his life insurance policy, after all his debts were paid off, be donated to mental health research and treatment. Quote, maybe another tragedy like this one can be avoided. He also requested an autopsy be done on his body. An autopsy was indeed done on his body, and as you might have guessed, this was how Charles Whitman, the Texas Tower sniper, made his way into this episode. Although initial findings from the autopsy, which was conducted by Austin State Hospital neuropathologist Coleman Deschenar, concluded that it was not the cause of Charles Whitman's monstrous actions on that summer day in 1966, a tumor the size of a pecan was found in the middle of his brain, right next to the amygdala, where flight or fight responses are generated. Texas Governor John Connolly ordered a re-examination of the evidence turned up in the autopsy. This Connolly commission found that, basically, we don't know enough about the brain to say for sure whether this tumor made Whitman do the things he did. But they did find, quote, the tumor conceivably could have contributed to his inability to control his emotions and actions. And this next part is a real doozy. Let's say that Daniel Dennett is right and that Charles Whitman was, indeed, competent at predicting the future by use of represented reasons which his mind created, and it's this competency that gave Whitman free will. If this tumor in his brain did affect the way that these representations were created, or the impact that those representations had on his behavior, then how would this affect the blame which Whitman incurred as a result of his crimes? Furthermore, if this tumor can affect his competency that yields free will, then what's the difference between that and some other physical characteristic of the brain affecting the competency? Even if we tried to blame Whitman for those actions that led to the brain states that induced these heinous crimes in August of 66, like sure the brain states caused his actions, but he was the one who chose to get addicted to amphetamines, he was the one who chose to beat his wife and make his life all crazy and messed up. Those actions that caused those brain states, though, were themselves caused by other prior brain states. Call the states whatever you want. Call them competency, future predictions, represented reasons. Regardless, they are all part of a causal chain. Daniel Dennett himself said that these brain states are determined and naturalistic. Because we can use these states to predict the future, he argues it gives us a responsibility. And that Charles Whitman shares in this responsibility. However, most people, when they learn of a tumor in the guy's brain that was morphing and changing the way that these future predictions were developed, they would rethink the level of blame we can assign to Charles Whitman and perhaps would put more blame on the tumor than on the conscious ego of Charles Whitman. But what is the real difference between a tumor and any other chemical process bubbling around in our brains? So what, after looking at all this, can we say about justice? Is it right to blame, to condemn Charles Whitman? Or is it right to praise or commend the Wright brothers? Daniel Dennett would say that we have a special responsibility as conscious humans for our actions because we have this capacity to represent our reasons to ourselves and to others. But what about the factors that go into creating those representations, like Whitman's tumor or Orville's planophore toy? If we cannot control these types of influences, especially if these influences add up to pretty much everything in our reality, as Descartes thought, then was Schopenhauer not correct in his observation that a man can do what he wills 
but he cannot will what he wills? Still, we cannot do away with justice. I think that this is the core of Daniel Dennett's argument, if I understand him correctly. The representation of reasons in our minds adds a layer of complexity to the equation, which determines our actions, that animals lack. This makes room for justice, no matter the determined nature of the action. But if we are not actually the original and final author of our actions, how can we justify the kinds of justice that we dole out in our legal system today? Perhaps we should take a closer look, real quickly, into what justice looks like in philosophy. Now, this is a whole nother rabbit hole of philosophical inquiry. Curiouser and curiouser. So I'm just going to do my best to just sort of peek into it, rather than falling all the way down in it. In very basic terms, you can look at ethics, which is the branch of philosophy that is concerned with things like justice and blame and good and evil actions, in two ways. You can judge the morality of an action by looking at the behavior itself which would be behaviorism or deontology. Or you can judge an action based on the effects that spring from that action, the consequences of the action. This is called consequentialism, one of the subgenres of which is utilitarianism. This basically just says something is right or wrong based solely on how much good or evil results from the action. The need of the many outweighs the need of the few is a utilitarian concept, for example. These two viewpoints are important for our justice system, especially if we accept the deterministic view of free will. Do we want a system that punishes people for an action even if it had no negative consequences? Do we want a system that causes more suffering with its own actions? How is it fair if the perpetrators are not free to do anything other than commit the crimes that they committed? Rather than saying that this behavior, because it was deliberately chosen, warrants this type and this degree of retaliation from the state, could we not say instead that the consequences of this action or that must be mitigated, and the state must act in a way, whatever way necessary, whether that be rehabilitation, medication, education, treatment, etc., or incarceration, physical isolation, violence, state-sanctioned killing, whatever it looks like, the state must act in a way of lessening the suffering that results from a criminal's behavior. This is putting the focus on the effects of the crime, the consequences of the action, rather than on just prescribing a reaction to a given behavior. So this is the conflict that I wanted to highlight in this question of justice and freedom of will. What does this mean for the way that we interact with people on a daily basis? What does this mean for, say, our legal system? How we punish criminal behavior? Should we punish a behavior? Or should we control a particular behavior's consequences? It seems like a very subtle distinction, but it's an important one in my mind. It seems to me that whether a person is free or not to have done other than what they did, if they were given the opportunity to go back in time and try a decision again, whether or not they're free, the utilitarian version of justice would just be more effective. If the belief in an innate free will causes us to reflexively blame or praise others based on their actions themselves and not based on the good or the bad that came out of those actions, then maybe we should lean away from that. But still, that doesn't tell us precisely what we should do in response to a behavior. That is, it doesn't offer a real ethical code. Most specifically, it doesn't say whether a penalty or a reward is more effective in changing behavior. Psychologists have conducted a whole plethora of experiments and studies aimed at answering this question. 
and the consensus is usually that punishments are more effective. We notice negative things more than we notice positive reinforcement. But I would like to discuss one particular study that was conducted in 2015. Jan Kubinek, Lawrence Snyder, and Richard Abrams published a study in the journal Cognition called Reward and Punishment Act as Distinct Factors in Guiding Behavior. This study revealed something similar to the case with P.S. that we probably could intuitively have guessed, but that now, thanks to the study, has some objective empirical data to back it. The authors assigned monetary values as representations of rewards and punishments for behaviors. The behaviors were simple, binary, correct or incorrect answers to simple questions. You get a question right, and they would give you some money, a positive reinforcement. You get it wrong, and they would take some of your money. They did this, and then they measured to see if the actions that led to rewards were repeated. That is, if the subject learned a positive behavior as a result of the positive influence. And they would also see that if the incorrect answer that gained them a penalty was avoided. As expected, and as has been documented in previous studies, the effect of the punishment on the subject's behavior was more pronounced than that of the rewards. However, the authors then varied the magnitude of the rewards and the punishments. In other words, they might reward or punish a subject in intervals of 5 cents or 10 cents the first round. And then the next round, they raise the stakes to, say, a dollar. And then the next round, like $10, etc. This change revealed something surprising. The effect of learning positive behavior, that is, repeating the right answers or avoiding the negative answers, this effect did not scale up in magnitude equally between the punishments and the rewards. Put another way, even though penalties had a stronger effect on the subject's behavior overall, when you increase the severity of the penalty, this did not translate to an increase of learning positive behavior. However, as a reward for good behavior was increased, the subject's response to the reward increased dramatically. On the graph, the line in the negative that represented a lack of doing behaviors that had been punished before stayed pretty much straight, level, horizontal. Whereas the positive line, which represented repeating responses which were rewarded in the past, curved up sharply as the reward was increased in magnitude, as the subject was given more money. So what does this mean for our question of justice? Owing to the confusion surrounding the true nature of our intentions and our control over our wills, we're trying to find what will yield the most effective change in behavior, that is managing the consequences, rather than just taking vengeance on evil behavior, prescribing punishments and penalties for behaviors regardless of the consequences. It seems to me that we can connect this study on human behavior with what we've talked about today with free will and the philosophy of ethics and draw a conclusion that sounds something like this. Although a penalty impacts behavior to a greater degree, people view this as just being punished, no matter how much the magnitude of the penalty is varied. So maybe we should, as a rule, use the smallest penalty possible the least harsh response to something we view as wrong that we can come up with. If someone does something immoral towards you, or if someone breaks a crime and the state needs to make a decision on how to act towards that, both cases, a harsher, more painful punishment will have the same effect 
as a less harsh, more restrained and merciful action. Conversely, if someone does something nice towards you, something that you appreciate, holding back and not voicing that gratitude would have much less of a positive impact on this person's life than if you were to express how much you appreciate what they've done, if you were to praise their achievements, if you were to lather on the attaboys and the thank yous and the I love yous. I'd venture to say that the greater the praise, the greater the positive reinforcement, so closely does the positive effect on people's behavior scale with the magnitude of the praise that it's probably not even worth the risk to keep your mouth closed. I would rather stumble over my words and say something embarrassing in order to tell someone how much I appreciate what they do for me. Because not saying it is potentially denying a hugely positive force in this person's life. And that scales up to a societal level also. So people who do achieve these great things like the Wright brothers, I feel like we should honor their memory and honor their achievements. The more so, the better. To put it colloquially, the burned hand learns best. But after a while, it's easier to catch a fly with honey rather than vinegar. I feel like an increase in the severity of a criminal sentence as a result of repeat offenses or an increase of aggressive behavior towards someone who continually wrongs you or doling out penalties out of a sense that the perpetrator deserves the suffering of their punishment is a misguided and ineffective approach. I also feel like doling out praise for one's accomplishments can never be done too much. So maybe as a society, we should try to shy away from attempting to rehabilitate people by piling more and more severe penalties on them for mistakes that they may not even have been able to help making. And at the same time, we should lean into praising them for accomplishments, even if these praiseworthy actions were equally beyond their control. After all, I guess you can sum up this notion with the following facepalm-worthy pun. Two wrongs don't make a right. But two rights make an airplane. Eh. Sorry. Imperfect Clarity is produced, researched, and narrated by me, Aaron Bradford. This show is my effort to bring you, our faithful listeners, a little bit of clarity to some of the world's most perplexing mysteries. Even if a perfectly complete explanation of these enigmas is simply beyond reach, I truly hope that you will be able to draw your own conclusions on these topics, and perhaps even approach the unknown in a totally new way. By doing so together, we can find a way to explain the perplexing, demystify the obscure, and elucidate the inscrutable, even if it is with imperfect clarity. A special thanks to Crystal for having my back on this endeavor and for helping me to make this crazy idea into a real show for all of you out there in podcast land to enjoy. Another special thanks to our patrons for helping to keep this show running. Gwen Scarborough and Roger Scarborough, you guys are my favorite people in the world right now. And, of course, a very special thanks to you, the listener. Without you, we wouldn't have a show. Please subscribe and review wherever you're listening to this. And if you want to know more about the different theories that try to explain what free will is, whether it is an illusion or not, and what this question means for our sense of right and wrong, I'll include links to all of my sources in this episode on the website. You can find it at imperfectclaritypodcast.com slash episodes slash right and wrong. As always, if you have any questions or comments regarding this episode, 
or any other episode of Imperfect Clarity, please do not hesitate to contact me. Look the show up on Facebook. Just search for Imperfect Clarity. Or you can also tweet us at mpodclarity. Or you can email us at imperfectclaritypodcast at gmail.com. Or you can also check out our website at imperfectclaritypodcast.com. Don't forget to leave a comment. Let us know what you think about the episode or about the show. We love to hear from our listeners. Until next time, keep contemplating the confounding. You'll gain a little bit more understanding. Even imperfect clarity is always better than easy answers. Thank you.